Good evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. What a wonderful audience tonight. Welcome to the National Library of Australia. My name's Cathy Pilgrim. I'm the Assistant Director General of the Executive and Public Programs Division here at the Library. As we begin tonight, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land that we are now privileged to call home. Tonight, we will hear from writer, speaker, and feminist thinker, Clementine Ford. Clementine is a communist from the for Fairfax's popular website, Daily Life, and is also a regular contributor to The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Her career as a journalist has long been devoted to issues of gender equality, men's violence against women, and also popular culture. Her first book, Fight Like a Girl, was an instant bestseller following its release last year an impassioned and unflinching expose of just how unequal the world continues to be for girls and women and why we have to change that now. Fight Like a Girl has elicited a committed following amongst women of all ages. This evening, Clementine is in conversation with Nikki Anderson. Nikki is a freelance communications and publishing specialist and co-chair of the Feminist Writers' Festival. She's also a great friend of the library. Please now join me in welcoming Clementine and Nikki. What a fabulous audience. Thank you, Canberra. Um, I must say I've done lots of author interviews, but I haven't had whoops before. I mean, I know they were for you, but it's a bit exciting. <laughs> I think it's for the wine, that's what uh, I'm yeah, excited about. Yeah. <laughs> and sorry, I'm, we're having wine and you'll have yours later, but anyway, it'll all even out. I'm spending the first night of the last six months away from my baby and I feel like I'm on holiday, I'm celebrating. <laughs> ah, you're you're right. not supposed to say that as a woman, you're supposed to say it's terribly hard, I expect to go home and cry all night. But well, I know you've been in tears all day. <sighs> and just awful. Yeah, you're just... <laughs> I reckon you will wake up tomorrow morning about six and go, oh my God, I yeah. forgot something like that. I did have a moment when I got out of the taxi on the way to the airport where I'd gotten all of my things and I was walking and I thought, oh shit, I've left him in the car. Yeah. <laughs> have you done that yet? Like, just no, I haven't. Although, um, on a very serious note, I, I have, um, there's been a couple of times when I've been driving where I've really felt the depth of sleep deprivation mm. and thought I shouldn't be behind the wheel of a car right now. You know, you sort of... Especially with precious cargo. Yeah, and I can really understand how women end up leaving a baby in the car. You know, just... I mean, it's a terrible, awful, tragic thing to do anything that would endanger the life of your baby. But it's just so easy. And and um, as I said to you before we came out, you know, I don't want to spend too much time talking about motherhood tonight because it's not really what the book's about. Mm -hmm. But... Obviously, I wrote the book and then I became a mother and so a lot of my feminist thinking has really expanded to include issues around motherhood Mm. and domestic labour and the inequality of labour that's done in the home, even in relationships where you think you go into it and you're like, well, we've got a very equal partnership Mm. and I just know that our relationship is going to continue in that respect. And when 
women say that to me now, or when people who are pregnant say that to me now, um, I can't help but have a little bit of, you know... <laughs> yeah, a little, a little smug. You wait. <laughs> Do you manage to zip it, though? Yeah, or? Um, yeah because, because you don't want... Uh, you know, yeah. I also hated that when I was pregnant, people yeah. saying, well, blah, 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 mm. this, you, you... And my friend Anna had um, the best way of responding... To, to questions around that and, you know, when I would say, ask for advice about something. And I feel like it's really applicable to lots of things if you're asking for advice in your life, generally speaking, which is she, she would always say, well, everyone is different, every baby is different, but this is what worked for us. Yeah. And it kind of, again, that's sort of something that I've learned um, through, through the experience of motherhood is not a different kind of tolerance, but a different way of addressing the needs that people have because yeah. I've always been very much like a person. If someone comes to me and says I'm having this... You know, if a friend comes in and shares an emotional issue that mm. they're having, I'm a problem solver. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that I'm very good at solving those problems, but, but I, I want to be yeah. the problem solver. Yeah. And that's... You know, it's been a process of learning that that's not always what people want. Sometimes yeah. they just want to share their experiences, which... I will use to segue back to the book, which is, you know, so much of the experience just generally of being women is yeah. wanting to share your experience yeah. of the world and having people tell you, well, no, um, you need to fix that or let's see how we can fix that mm. or you're wrong about mm. it. Well, there are so many entry points there I could go into, but I might go straight then to the, the personal kind of stuff because I think that has been such a galvanising thing about your writing, but especially of the book. I think um, it's that you know, no holds barred, sharing the personal that gives younger women um, an entry point, perhaps it's a bit of a gateway to feminism. But um, so I'd love to kind of know from you, has that been a really conscious thing for you to say, I'm going to write personally because that mm. is the way I'm going to sell feminism to um, the masses? Or is it just what works for you? Um, it's... It's a little bit of both. Like, cynically, yes, there is some element in there of how can I market it. And mm. it's not because I'm a marketing kind of person, but because practically speaking, you have to figure out a way to make your message um, not palatable, because I've never really been concerned about that, but accessible. Yeah. Um, I know. It's <laughs> funny, isn't it? Clementine Ford, all about palatable. Uh, well, when I... When I uh, it's not true that I've never been focused on that. When mm. I... Once I'd embraced the feminist, feminist within, which is not becoming a feminist, but recognising that feminism was the only way I could really make it through the world. Mm. Um, once I'd embraced that and then became a writer and, and, you know, a feminist writer, I did what so many of us do, which is... Um, and which, thankfully, we're starting to break the mould of doing now, but which was to try and just be so nice about mm. everything. The softly, softly approach, you know. As I say in the book, my dad always said to me when I was growing up, you'll catch more flies with honey than you will with vinegar. Mm. But I also make the point in the book that he never said that to my brother. Yeah. It's only ever girls who hear that. Mm. You have to be nice and sweet. And I still see it happening now, and it frustrates yeah. me so much that to sell a message, not to sell, to impart upon people the importance of a message of empowerment for women and not just empowerment but the message that all women, no matter what kind of woman they are, deserve to have dignity and respect mm. and the ability to navigate their own life experience and to be in charge of their own narrative and to, to do all that without having to worry about an additional you know, raft of, of violence is done towards them. Mm. 
that we shouldn't have to do that and also be charged with making men feel good about it or making men feel like they're not part of the problem because they are part of the problem in exactly the same way that as a white person, I am part of the problem of white supremacy. Mm. And I can't just say, say well, you know, um, I, I consciously don't think of myself as a racist because I don't get to decide whether yeah. or not I am or not. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I have the privilege of being able to wake up every day and say, well, I don't really feel like targeting yeah. racism today or the privilege of waking up and not always recognising it. Mm. You know, so it has to be, if you are part of, um, there's a writer who I really love called Ijoma Aluo, and she's an American writer, and you can follow her on Facebook. She's, she's writing a book. She's just submitted it. It's a book about race. And um, I think it's, it's mainly focused on racism, but obviously as a feminist as well, and they'll, she'll be covering that too. But she writes really amazing, thought-provoking things, and she recently wrote something about... Um, no matter what your background is, you have to figure out where your privilege intersects. I th I'm going to misquote her, I think. It was something like you have to figure out where your privilege... Your oppression intersects with your privilege mm. and start there. Mm. So, as, a, you know, I, I tried to be very conscious in the book of recognising that, yes, I'm a woman who experiences gender oppression, but I also experience a whole raft of privileges mm. that I need to be conscious of in the same way that I challenge and demand of men to be conscious of gender oppression and not just sort of go, well, I'm a good guy and that's mm, the extent of mm. the involvement that I need to have. Yeah, I, um, I feel much the same way and, I, you know, I'm a good possibly 10 years younger than you, also from South Australia. Um, I did have a good Barbara Hanrahan quote, which I might, you know, bring out later as another South Aussie. But I think, um, you know, similarly came to feminism like you at university, mm. you know, became sort of radicalised that way, you know, whatever. Um, and then... <laughs> Um, but this sort of new, I guess, intersectionality of feminism and really checking your privilege and really looking at what feminism has not done and how it hasn't been inclusive, I've found a really interesting new, mm. um, uh, not necessarily super new, but yeah, it's been a really interesting direction, both, you know, for feminism really broadly, but I think for feminists individually, it's really, mm. you know, made us kind of question everything and I think that's so so healthy for any belief system that you have because it really mm. makes you look at how you're living your life and and how and you think you're an activist but then actually yeah what am I missing here well I was thinking about it recently and you know again I want to stress that my take on intersectionality clearly comes from my own perspective yeah. and um the reason that I can talk about it maybe to the limited even extent that I can, is because of the writing that other women have yeah. done on this topic. Um, so I'm by no means an expert at all. Um, but the way that I think about what feminism is going through now is, you know, people like to talk about infighting and, oh, it's being divisive and we're all turning on each other and we need to just be one unit. But it's usually people who are at the top of the pile who say that about any kind of structural mm -hmm. oppression. Um, so... I like to think of it now as, as feminism is going through a process of kneading out a lot of really hidden knots mm. in the movement, you yeah. know. That, and there's an, it's necessary and it's painful. It, it does hurt. Um, I'm not saying that anyone needs to care about that pain. You know, no one needs to care about the pain that I feel going through mm. checking my own privilege. But it's a human emotion to feel defensive mm. and to feel like you need to qualify that you're not that type of person. 
it's what you do with those feelings afterwards exactly. that count. You know, if you if you kind of like dig your heels in and double down on it and you say, well, no, you're being divisive. You need to accept this, that or the other. Then you're being just as bad as the mm. people who you're fighting mm. against. Um, so even though, yes, sometimes I've definitely had my little human emotions mm. where I've gone and licked my wounds and felt like, no, being unfair to me, I'm a good person. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, then you kind of like, I try and remind myself to stop and think, about why that is painful and what I can do to make it less painful for other people. Because if mm. I'm feeling pain over it, yeah. the person who's saying it to me is feeling a hundred times more exactly. pain. Um, and how amazing that they can actually yeah. know, speak out about that and be vulnerable about it. And, and I feel like if we kind of all, if we try and approach things with that level of intellectual engagement in a topic across all sorts of issues, yeah. then we're, we'll actually progress pretty far like a, a good example is um and this isn't anything to do with the intersectionality issue but um there was another topic that it's the it's the endless argument about women taking their husband's names when mm. they get married you know and I am personally deeply opposed to that likewise um, <laughs> but look some some people in this room will have done that mm. and where I think it kind of becomes really frustrating is that that conversational topic will open up and the women who've done it may feel like they need to defend their choice. Yeah. Um, whereas I would prefer to approach all sorts of different topics like that, not, not as a point of you need to defend your choice or your choice is wrong, but yes, you made a choice, you made a choice in the context of the community and the culture that you're living in. Can we talk about the conditions that we live yeah. in that maybe led to that choice. Because that's the interesting stuff. And having that discussion isn't me saying to you, you're wrong for taking mm. your husband's name. It's mm. not saying you need to change it, otherwise you're a bad feminist. Mm. And it's not saying you're an idiot either. Yeah. It's saying, like, let's talk about cultural conditioning because no one makes choices in a vacuum. Mm. And I, we, sometimes we just sort of, like, run up against these roadblocks all the time because people... People sometimes make the argument that you're taking things too personally and that is the wrong line to take because they're taking it personally because it affects their life mm. and it affects their safety and certain things that people complain about and are activists about, they can't separate the personal from the p political mm. because it is their life. Mm. But then there are other things that it doesn't affect anyone's life in, you know, in the Western context. It, there are very few people who will face oppression if they don't take their husband's name. Mm. So why can't we have a conversation about what's leading to those choices? And then the, the defence that's always put up is, um, well, isn't feminism about choice? Mm. And I always think, well, it has to be about so much more than women just having the luxury of being able to make a choice about something yeah. as relatively meaningless as what name you have when yeah. you get married. Yeah. It has to be about liberation. It has to be about, you know... It has to be about actual challenge and mm, fight and mm. hurt and pain and re like dismantling the whole system to create a better place for all people, you know, not just about operating within the oppressive structure that we have and trying to make it better for some people mm. and saying, well, but I made a choice within that structure and therefore I have freedom. Yeah, yeah, well, I have the choice to do this and that and therefore, you know, we're post-feminist or whatever. Yeah. So, But I, th I think it's that interrogation, going back to the kind of the personal, it's that interrogation of the personal and the, and the surrounds um, that is the thing about all of your personal stories and your sharing. And, you know, it's that on the one hand, 
creating those kind of talking about things that people that resonate with people that they can relate to um, women in particular obviously but then also saying it's not a, just about the personal mm. this is a gendered phenomenon like you you are experiencing these things because of something more and I think that's the kind of the gateway feminism thing it's like yeah. you know I can share stories of abortion or sexual assault or you know whatever it is um, and I drag you in mm. and um, because we have this you know this commonality but we need to actually talk about the fact that that commonality is our gendered experience of the world. Yeah, and so much of it is hidden, and it's hidden because we feel awkward about talking about it, and we also are, again, conditioned mm. to feel like nice, polite conversation doesn't cover the experiences of 50% of the world. Mm. Um, we wouldn't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable if we actually talked about the things that uh, are done to us. Mm. And, you know, it's, I like to make that distinction as well between saying the things that happen to us and the things that are done, done to us. Because, so, I mean, even when you look at the way that uh, reporting is done in the media about violence against women, so often it's the passive voice. Yeah. Sometimes you have to make it to the third or fourth paragraph before you even find out who was involved yeah. in the, the other happening. party, exactly. Yeah, you know, or, you know, like, um, uh, even with the, the terrible story recently in Melbourne, you know, the guy who ran into all the people on Burke mm. Street Mall... One of the headlines that I read was a car runs into, you know, and kills a people. A driverless car. But, yeah. you know, like, who's driving yeah. the car, you know? Who's actually exerting the violence over people? Mm. And I remember having a conversation with, I won't um, say who it was in my life, but a conversation with someone who was in my life for a period of time. Um, not in a romantic sense, thank God. <laughs> and he was saying, you know, this sort of classic conversation that, Many of us in this room would have had with someone and felt incredibly frustrated, like we're banging our head up against a brick wall, brick wall, where they're insisting on the one hand that women need to take responsibility for their safety, that we need that the world is a bad place and there are evil monsters out there, and you know we just need to be practical, and you can't just leave your wallet on the windowsill of your house or on the dashboard of your car. There's so many different like. Mm. Analogies Jeez. of possessions yeah. that uh, equate to a woman's body, mm. you know, where it's just being left unlocked somewhere. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Forgotten my vagina. Oops. Yeah, I left it. I left it. It was open. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, and you know, saying on the one hand that we need to protect ourselves, and then, but you don't, you, you don't dare try and protect yourself against me. Mm. I'm a good guy. Exactly. How dare you make me feel like I might be a threat? So I was having this conversation with this man. And he was, he was making that argument and um, my friend and I were saying back to him, well, that's, that's ridiculous. You know, it's not, women's, it's not women's responsibility to protect themselves from mm -hmm. violence. It's, it's men's responsibility not to be violent against women mm -hmm. and that's where the focus needs to be. And he said, oh, well, I don't know anyone who's been raped. <laughs> and I just Did thought... Roll out some statistics you don't, there. Firstly, mm. you don't know anything about what you're talking about mm. because you, if you looked up even a cursory article about it, then you would have come across some statistics which would tell you that you're wrong. But also, of course, they're not going to tell you around the dinner table because you don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. Mm. But of course, they're not going to tell you because you're a hostile person yeah. to their experience. Why would they confide that information to you mm. when you clearly have made it clear to them that you're unsafe? Yeah. You know, and, that, and that's what so much... It's. I think that what I really wanted to do with the book and what I tried very hard to do was um, was to acknowledge that the the experiences that we have as women 
that we minimise because we just assume that either they're only happening to us mm. or they happen to every other mm. woman. So they're not... Either way, they're not a big deal and we certainly don't have any grounds to make complaints about them. But actually, we are entitled to give voice to those experiences because they're not something that happen as a parenthetical thing to the experience of being human. They're very mm. much about the experience of being a particular kind of human. Mm. And they happen to so many mm. of us that why are these experiences not being discussed mm. and targeted as being something that we want to stamp out of our collective culture yeah. as human beings? Yeah. And I feel like... Um, I d oh, it's always hard to know because I do live in such a bubble. Um, you know, everyone's thinking the same way <laughs> I do. But I feel like the conversation around sexual assault and rape is starting, you know, like people are starting to flip that yeah. question a little bit. It's not about what was she doing. It was about, well, how dare he, you know, well, why is he raping someone or why is he sexually assaulting someone? So I yeah. kind of feel like there well, has been... Why does been this article about it talk about his sporting abilities? Oh, yeah, exactly. Or his ruined career or his... Yeah. yeah. I, you know, so I do... It's small but the, change. But the good but thing about that is that I think that's true as well and I've been very heartened in seeing, you know, I've been writing... in publicly about feminism for the, for the last 10 years and I've definitely experienced a shift mm. and yes there are people who send me hideous things and do horrific things to me online mm. but pff, whatever like it's it's water off a duck's back really unless they t you know target members of my family um, if they're just saying things about me I could care less mm. whether or not they want to have sex with me um <laughs> I'm sure, given their attitude towards women, they wouldn't be very good at it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I have definitely noticed a shift in the way that people are prepared to talk about these things and also in the way that excuses are not now being made. And what that signifies to me is that when people say you need to be nicer to men, for example, because you need to have them on board, I, have, I never got anywhere with men as an audience mm. when I was being nice to them and mm. when I was saying, well, of course, when I was spending a quarter of every article that I wrote saying, well, of course, not every man is like this and, of course, there are many brilliant men out there and we know that you, man reading this, wouldn't mm. possibly ever do anything like this. I never got anywhere because, of course, if you just provide yeah. the excuse to people to give themselves a little pat on the back because they've done the minimum that they need to do, which is read an article yeah. by a woman about this topic. Tick feminist. Yeah, and they yeah. can say, well, I'm, I'm very informed on this topic, yeah. you know. Um, I support women writers. I read them sometimes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that doesn't result in anything. And again, like going back what I said, uh, to what I said earlier, it, it hasn't resulted... That nice, nice approach mm. never resulted in any change in me mm. when people were talking about the oppression that they experienced from racism. It's being made to feel uncomfortable... Yeah that creates change, it's being challenged on your position and it's being explicitly told not ask yourself how you're complicit in this, but, mm. but accept that you're complicit in this and do what it needs to be done to change that. Mm. And that, I think, is what is resulting in this change and that is why talking about it has been so important. So, so I, I mean, I figured that out, but what I want to say to women especially and to young girls especially... Mm is that any feeling that they have of, I need to be nicer about this, I need to, I need to package my she message a little bit more sweetly, I need to be less bolshy, all of these words mm. that are used to describe women who are, you know, just going to... I need to be less of a nasty woman yeah. about this. 
No, that that mm. you need to be more of a nasty woman mm. about this because nasty it will. Enough. You'll get. You know, it, you'll create enemies along the way, but the end result will be worth it because people will make that change. And I, I'm sorry, I'll just say one more mm-hmm. thing on that on that topic. That um, when when I still sort of sense that people are struggling to kind of wrap their head around how you could be really um, decisive and really uh, non what's the word, non-negotiable about these issues. Um, I always use the example of when we banned smoking in restaurants. And in Adelaide, where I was living at the time, they banned smoking in restaurants at around 1996. And at the time, they said, well, you'll never be able to ban smoking in restaurants because people love going out to a restaurant and having a meal and having a cigarette. And this is just an infringement on our civil liberties. And they banned smoking because they recognised that it was a health hazard Mm. and they banned smoking. And then within a very, very short period of time, people were fine with the ban Mm. on smoking in restaurants. And then about 10 years later, they banned smoking in pubs. And when they proposed the legislation, people said, well, you'll definitely never be able to ban smoking in pubs because people like to go out and have a drink after work. And this is an infringement on our civil liberties. But they banned smoking in pubs because they recognised it was a health hazard. And now, if you went into a restaurant or a pub or, or a public building in anywhere in this country mm. and you lit up a cigarette, people would look at you like you were a pariah. Yeah. They would look at you like there was something deeply wrong with you and it would be demanded that you either put it out or that you left, maybe even both. Mm. And people wouldn't tolerate or, accept, or accept it. And violence against women is a health hazard. Mm. And violence against women isn't just physical violence. It's not just the most extreme end of the spectrum. Violence against women occurs because we allow for the continuum of violence to exist, which means that we allow for all of the foundations to, to erect that violence to be in place. Sexist jokes, misogynist comments, um, the fact that you know, women are spoken of as being not... You know, the, the meritocracy argument, all mm. of these little ideas that we allow to continue pervading people's ideas about what women are... Yeah and what we should tolerate and what we should laugh at and what we're not allowed to complain about. And funnily enough, the people who always make those arguments are never the ones being targeted by the jokes. And from the very few occasions that I've posted jokes about men on Twitter or on Facebook, I can tell you they do not know how to take a joke about themselves. Um, They don't even recognise that it is a joke because it's so astonishing to them that anyone could make a joke about them. So they literally believe you when you say that you're going to build a cannon and fire them into the sun. Um, so if we recognise that, that violence against women, including sexism and misogyny, is a health hazard, and we actually take a definitive... Uh, we decide as a community that we will not tolerate this mm. in any way, shape or form. Yes, people will complain about it in the beginning and they'll say, well, you can't police people's thoughts. Yeah. But within a few years, you would get to the point where if someone told uh, even just a really basic retro-sexist joke... People wouldn't necessarily... I'm not saying they'd be angry at them, but they would look at them and they'd be like, why would you say no, that? I don't yeah. even get it. It's not... Why would you think yeah. that that's funny? Yeah. And that's that's the direction that we need to go in. Yeah. And again, I, I kind of feel like it's happening. Like, I feel like in my lifetime, those conversations have really come up and you sort of have to be hopeful about it, don't you, that change is a happening? Cause, yeah, well, yeah. If, you, if you're not hopeful about it, then what's... Yeah. What's the point of living? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I just want to um, talk about girlhood a bit. And you go into... You talk about your 
um, girlhood and your childhood and, and you know, all of the things that made you. And I, I think there would have been a lot of surprises for readers who know you as, you know, public um, feminist number one to know that you've gone through what, you know, a lot of us went through in terms of, you know, body image stuff and lack of confidence and worse. But I'm just... Um, and while I'm interested in your personal story, I'm just wondering about your what you think the discourse around girlhood is at the moment. Like, do you think girls are... Is it still all about beauty and submissiveness? Um, has it changed since you and I were kids? You know, where does academic pressure and that striving kind of sit? Do you have any thoughts um, about the status of girlhood? I can only really speak to this broadly because mm. I don't – I think that some things stay the same mm. and then some things adapt themselves to the environment that people are in. From conversations that I've had with my younger cousins, I, f I feel like certainly in their peer groups they have more conversations about things like sex positivity mm. and um, making sure that sexuality is equal – but at the same time, I think that eating disorders are still really common and prevalent. Mm. So I'm not really sure that I can give an academic answer to that. But I, I, I think that what I can say is that we, it hasn't changed that we live in a culture in which the most prized thing is in a woman is her beauty followed by her compliance. Mm. And I think that that... Um, it still runs very deep and that there are still... Uh, I find it interesting that you said that it was surprising that I would have those same issues and that I could be the kind of feminist that I am now and have a history of that because I feel like you almost have That's to have had that yes. kind of past to... No, I meant for readers. I think um, mm. readers may have, you know, come to the book and, mm. but, you know, you're so confident, you're so bullshit, you're so outspoken. Oh, my God, she had all these struggles as a girl. So, it, you know, maybe it... But, you know, the thing is I still have those struggles and... Um, for anyone who hasn't read the book, I talk in quite great detail about some eating disorders that I had. Just some eating disorders I had. <laughs> I had anorexia and I had bulimia. And um, I don't think that... I don't think that the impact of those disorders ever really goes away. Mm. You know, it's, it's a little bit like being a smoker. You know, you can quit yep. smoking, but you'll always be a smoker. Mm. You can quit drinking alcohol, but you'll always be an alcoholic. Mm. And the damage that they do to your psychological state of being, not to mention your physical state of mm. being, is immense. You know, yeah. it's really, really hard to break through that. But the most surprising thing to me about, you know, I, I don't think I even really verbalised this to myself until I was writing the book. I didn't even consciously recognise it, was how I could have been in such dire straits and going through such trauma and no one around me yeah, knew. I no, one, no one picked up on it. They either weren't looking or... I mean, I think it's probably a combination of that they weren't looking for it because that stuff happens to other people. Yeah. And also that, oh, well, it's normal for teenage girls to diet. Mm. It's normal for them to be really controlling and picky about their food. It's normal for them to care about whether or not they're thin. Um, and then also that you were sort of rewarded for... Yeah. Losing and look, a, well, not look sort you've... Of, yeah. You were, you know, I was a plump child and I lost a lot of... I grew up in a family where my mother and I inherited a lot of issues about eating and body bodies from my mother who inherited it from her mm. mother so I can't even blame her for it she didn't have anyone unpacking her for yeah. unpacking it for her and I had a father who inherited the same 
issues not for himself, but the same ideas about yeah. what women should be from his family. And when I was talking about it with my aunt, who's my dad's sister, and, you know, it's, I, I, it, it's not none of it is an attack on my parents mm. for what they failed to do. Um, but when I was talking about it with my aunt, who's my dad's sister, and I said, you know, why do you think that family or that side of the family prized women mm. looking this particular way? Because I knew that it was sort of came from his parents as well. Um, and she said, well, I think that they like a lot of boys were raised to believe that girls should flatter them by being mm. beautiful. Mm. You know, that if you're, and that made a lot of sense to me that, um, and you know, way, the way that you see some men who are quite obviously reveling in their sexism even today, speak about the way that women should look, you know, mm. that, this is a horrible website called return of Kings. Don't look it up. <laughs> um, it's just repulsive and it's just a big t- troll um, but, you know, they published an article recently that someone sent me that was something like 26 women who were beautiful and then became feminists. And <laughs> there were photos of women who were quite clearly, like, conventionally sort of conforming to attractive beauty standards. And then women who were like, fuck that. And <laughs> they had, you know, hair that they liked and some of them had put on weight. Oh, my God, yeah. putting on weight. Um, and... Those are an exa- those are, are examples of men who feel like women only exist to flatter them mm. with their beauty. Because if if a woman is beautiful and she's around him, then he must mean something. Um, so there was all this sort of like you know swirling psychological issues around it. Um, but yeah, you know you get rewarded. You you lose weight, and people mm. say, "Oh, you just look so great. Isn't it great that you've got such great willpower?" Mm. Um, and I think that you know the like I was saying, the fact that it could have happened to the extent that it did where I Mm. became so emotionally unwell, it wasn't as obvious necessarily physically, even though I did lose a lot of weight in a very short period of time. Um, When I sort of started to put the weight back on, but I didn't become emotionally better, then it it was, oh, well, you need to start watching what you're eating again, Mm. you know? We went from being a state of my parents being very worried about me to... You're getting, you're putting on too much weight now. Mm. And I mean, obviously, all these experiences of growing up and being a girl, you know, made you eventually, you know, political. But I'm wondering, since you've been become very political, has, does it help with the emotional and the personal stuff? I mean, does that sort of, you know, can you switch your academic brain on and, you know, deal with yourself better? Or I mean, does it help? Or um, I think the, that language, the best thing that no I don't think so because I think that sometimes it can make it seem worse Mm. because you have a rational brain that you can attack these issues with but it still doesn't help you when you're standing in front of the mirror and poking and prodding at things and saying well I'm a terrible human being because I gave birth to a baby and now I have a podgier (laughs) tummy than I did before or I've got these stretch marks I mean like I don't it's not like I do that every day you know but everyone has Mm. I think one of the problems is that we talk about these things and we just accept them as being Mm. part of life. You know, oh, well, all women have terrible body moments. You know, all women have moments where they don't feel great about their bodies. Isn't that so sad? Isn't that sad that all women have that? Um, So actually what helped more with that was, um, I don't play it anymore, but I played roller derby for about four Mm. years and I never grew up playing sports. I think I played softball when I was about nine. Um, but, but 
I didn't come from a family that pushed me into sports, mm. thankfully, because I was too self-conscious to play sports yeah. and to do PE and all these things. But the studies that have been done show that the best way to make girls feel good about themselves and to feel positive about their bodies is to increase their involvement in yeah. physical activity. And that's not so that they can be thin, but it's so that they can look at their body doing something differently. Yeah. It's the strength thing. Because yeah. I have a little girl and we have to focus a lot on you being strong. Look at those strong yeah. legs, that sort of thing. And it's so empowering. Yeah, and we, fo we absorb so much this message that our body, that, that the, the meaning and the worth comes from our body from how other people look at it, mm -hmm. not what we can do with it. Yeah. And I think that it was, it was playing a sport, and particularly a sport like roller derby, where you don't have to be one set size. Mm. It's not like doing ballet, which I always wanted to do when I was a kid and never had any, any of the right equipment for it. <laughs> um, but, you know, you can, you can be exactly who you are in roller yeah. derby. And, and more importantly as well, or perhaps like going along with that, it's a woman-run community. Yeah. And so women get to be in charge of everything and they get to be in control of the message. Mm. So I think that, you know, we would just vastly underestimate how putting women in charge, not just of their bodies, but in charge of the way that their bodies can be used mm. and can be, um, can form part of a narrative is very important. And, mm. and so that's sort of talking more broad, more broadly about girlhood. That's what I'd say is probably still in place now is that girls still feel too much like there's nothing really significant that's been done to challenge the perception that girls bodies exist for other people to judge and yeah. for other people to own yes we have empowering advertising now but that's just mm. because capitalism has cottoned on to the fact that feminism sells yeah i can sell more stuff. doesn't actually really change anything you mm. know um it's just so I, I think when, when I was writing particularly those chapters, I wanted the young girls who I knew would be reading it to recognise that I thought I was the only one going through it when mm. I was 13. And I want them to recognise that not only are they not the only ones going through it, but that there is so much power and strength to be had from solidarity with yeah. other girls yeah. over these issues. You mm. know, that we don't need to actually look to other people to qualify our existence. We... And that kind of goes a little bit back to um, this idea of being nice to men in order for feminism to succeed, is to succeed, that we need to have men on board, we need to empower men to be leaders in the feminist movement, which is just bullshit. Women need, need to, to be, be leaders. leaders in the feminist movement. And more importantly than that, we need to empower women to recognise that they're allowed to mm. lead their movement, that they're allowed to say... I don't need to be nice to you yeah. to qualify that I deserve dignity and respect as a mm. human being. And I don't need to replicate patriarchal structures within this liberation movement in order for you to politely give it to me. Because mm. what happens when we turn around then and we, you know, we've, we've done that, we've gone through the process and we have this illusion of equality and we turn around and we say, okay, men, can we stop being quite so nice to you now? Can we stop having to applaud every time you mm. say something or ask your permission to be yeah, we're in exactly the same boat then because no one's going to want to give up that power if they've become used to it exactly now time is a ticking we will go to questions in a minute so start preparing yourselves there will be some mics on either side we definitely need you to wait and use the microphone because this is being recorded I'll um, just keep going because, you know, I've got Please a lot to do. ask. Um, but I'm just wondering, talking about leadership and women in power, can we talk about Hillary Clinton for a little bit? Because Sure. 
I mean, you know, we Such don't a have nasty any nasty woman. Nasty <laughs> women. Um, we don't have another hour. We could go for an hour, but you know, like just riff for me for five minutes on Hillary. Oh, um, oh it's just, and what it means for our for girls having seen that. I'd like, I'd like to preface this by saying that I understand and respect why there, are, why there are lots of reasons why some women wouldn't be on board with Hillary Clinton. And I do acknowledge and respect mm-hmm. that. There are the reasons why I wanted Hillary Clinton to be president, again, like I have the luxury and privilege of being able to ignore some of those issues mm. um, or being able to not make myself think about them. But at the same time, I really have a huge problem with people who argue that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are just as bad as each other. I mean, come on. It's unfathomable. It's really... We have a situation, whether or not you respect... Whether or not you respect her individual politics, whether or not you think that, you know, she's hawkish or whatever it might be, just looking at it purely on the face Mm. of things, this was realistically the most experienced candidate to ever have run for president in the United States. And again, like, you could totally oppose her politics and still recognise that to be true. If we're talking about merit. Yeah, versus, like, I've described him recently, a balloon animal. (laughs) You know, he, he... This man is... It's the most qualified candidate versus the least qualified mm. candidate. And it's not the least qualified candidate in the sense that he's rogue and, you know, like, he came and he was outside of the system. He's a cowboy, you know, but he's got some great ideas and he's going to go in there and really shake up Washington for the better. No, of mm. course not. I mean, I, th- I just feel like it's just so... It's such a classic example of how you can try and try and try mm. as hard as you want as a woman... You can, she, she ate shit for three decades, you know, and maybe her ambition at the start was to become president, but people speak about that as if she should be ashamed of that mm, somehow. Mm. Oh, she's just always wanted to be president. Yeah. Wow. Like, what an <laughs> awful person, you know? Like, Evil. Like any other man who grew up to be president didn't want to be president when mm. he was a kid, you know, or, or, or wasn't just handed it, like in the case of George Bush, George W. Bush. You know, like... The fact that she was so qualified and she worked so much harder than everyone else and then she still couldn't get it. It's still... And, and you know, yes, white women were a big part of that problem, mm. you know, that there is a huge problem in women internalising not just misogyny but embracing racism yeah. because they want to feel... Whatever they feel like they lack in, in power in their own life, they want to exert over the people that culture tells them that they're allowed to exert control yeah. over. Or they want to feel like they're protected somehow by supporting a patriarchal structure because they can be the official woman within it. Um, you know, so the fact that she is now... It, w- it was her race to lose. And people say, well, you know, she was the worst candidate for them to put up. Shut up. Mm. She was not. She was the best candidate for the Democrats to put up. She didn't lose the election. Mm. We know that she won the popular vote. We know that she got the second highest amount of votes of any president in recorded history, aside from Obama. Um, and, you know, that comparison that people make between her and Bernie Sanders, you know, people who supported Bernie Sanders speaking almost as if Hillary should have just politely sat down and given it to him. Bernie's here now, so... But, you, you know, she should have just given it to Bernie because the people wanted Bernie. Well, clearly, not all mm. of the people wanted Bernie. And those that... You know, I get so frustrated and angry thinking about people saying, well, if Bernie Sanders had been the, the candidate, he would have won... And that may be true because maybe the people who wanted Bernie so badly that they protest voted against Hillary mm. Clinton, 
she didn't get those votes. But I, I could be wrong here, but I feel like the people who didn't get their candidate in Hillary, far fewer of them would have protest voted against Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. They would have just, they would have said, no, the alternative is Donald Trump and that is a nightmare. So mm. let's vote for Bernie. Mm. You know, so this, the people who were like, well, mm, Hillary's not going to get it, blah, blah, blah. Like most of, most of the classic example of the white Bernie, Bernie bro. And I know that that's a reductive term. I know that some people feel very insulted by that. But they're not going to be the ones who are affected by a Trump no, presidency. Exactly. You know, they can sit there and make their little protest and have their little whinge. Um, and it's it's they they don't even want to acknowledge that that there's sexism underpinning under, mm. underpinning that mm. because they don't want to acknowledge that in the left we can be troubled by those same yeah. issues. Yeah, it's sort of um, you know fifties communist you know communism sexism arguments all over again of you know like yeah. what are the women do oh yeah we're all equal except you know the well women it's the are same it's cooking. the same problem that feminism has in terms of the white feminist argument of well, we, we need to just get a general kind of equality and then equality for everyone else will fall into yeah. place after that, which is obviously rubbish. You don't aspire for equality to the people who are privileged most Already. within an oppressed system mm. because why on earth would they get what they want and then work hard mm. to fix what's beneath them? You have to work from the ground up yeah. because that's the only way that... Nothing trickles down. We've I know. It's like we should have realised you know, that. We've, we've not realised things up. Yeah. You don't trickle down. One more tiny Hillary thing. You wrote a great column about now is the time to stop being the good girl. And, I mean, is she actually going to turn into the nasty woman, like turning up for the inauguration, being so freaking gracious? It's like, can she stop? Will she stop? What well, you then, you know, the other thing that poor, poor Hillary, the other thing is that now people are kvetching about her because she's not doing enough to protest the Trump administration. Mm. Where's Hillary gone, mm. they're saying, you know? It's like, give the girl a break. She's having I mean, a wine and a bit of a lie down, I think. Honestly, I just really don't feel like a man would be targeted with the mm. same... They, people would accept, people generally would accept that he had tried, he'd, he, it hadn't worked out, and now why should he, why should he have to turn up and do anything else? Mm. You know, you, the people didn't want him, but Hillary is still expected to... And she can't win either way, mm. you know? She didn't turn up to the inauguration, then people would have talked about how she was just a stroppy, whiny little baby girl mm. who... And it's a good thing that she didn't become president, you know? I just yeah. feel like beyond the political thing and, and, again, beyond anyone's particular political opposition to her, I just feel really tired and heartbroken at what it all represents. Mm. Yeah, I must say, I was kind of glad that my daughter is not a bit older and didn't you know doesn't really yeah. kind of understand the impact because I think yeah if you're a bit older and watching that and hoping a bit like you know with Julia Gillard like how it's devastating yeah anyway enough about me and my child um we've got questions we've got 10 minutes more or less for questions so I saw a hand go up there and there was one next door there's one there and so yes the woman standing up in the green you're first. No, 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 no it's no, being recorded. Yeah, just wait for the mic and then hold it nice and close. While she's doing that mic, I'll just very quickly say that uh, one of the frustrating things that I kept coming across when Julia Gillard was being, mm. you know, bombarded by terrible misogyny was people saying, oh, we'll get over it. You know, all prime ministers, all people in leadership are attacked. J people attacked John Howard's eyebrows. You're like, okay, 
making fun of John Howard's eyebrows is pretty different to Larry Pickering drawing mm. pornographic images mm. of Julia Gillard. And people don't yeah. understand that it's not it's not that people are saying that she doesn't deserve criticism, it's the method with which mm. you criticise. You know, you can't... If you are using language that you wouldn't use against a man, then you need to be using mm. different language. The deeply gendered nature. Yeah. The violent kind of words that are used. Yeah. I mean, all the time. Like, if, you know, people are attacking you or other prominent feminists or heads of state. Yeah. I mean, it. if, if it's, it's, a, if it's a, a genuine, legitimate attack, mm. there are different words that you can use. Mm. Make, it, make an intellectual attack, you know. You don't even... It doesn't even need to be... A superior intellectual attack. Like, you can be base about it. I've called some people some pretty base names. But just make sure that it's not something that relies on their gender to be the humiliating point. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you. Um, just to give it a tiny bit of background, we had a, a, an election last year in October and one of the candidates, a male in that election, used the Tinder app to um, campaign um, for him in, in himself in the election. So I have two questions in relation to that. One is, if it was a woman using a dating app to uh, try and campaign in, a, in an election, what do you think the response would be? And secondly, what is the appropriateness of a white middle-class male using a dating app to try and gain votes? Tinder, as um, most people would know, is, is, is mostly a heterosexual dating site. <coughs> I think it's very obvious what the response would be if a woman was using a, a dating app to get votes. Um, so I don't, I don't even feel like I need to answer that in great detail. I think that she would be likened to a sex worker and obviously the discussion around sex work is... It wouldn't have been a positive comparison. Um, despite the fact that, you know, it's, it's like that, whole, that old adage that people, people love to point with one finger and jerk off with the other, you know, that they get, they get titillated by sex work and, and, and I, I think that sex work is a completely legitimate profession, by the way. I don't mean to denigrate sex workers, but people love to shame sex workers while also using the services. Um, and I think that that's... Uh, well, I don't, did he win? He won. Um... Well, of course they did. Of course they did because it just shows, you know, get up and go and ingenuity from a man, doesn't it? I think it's sleazy and gross and um, I, don't think it's the, I don't think it's something necessarily that I would... It's not, the, it's not something that offends me more than other things. I'm not, like, super offended by it. I just think it's... I just think it's a bit sleazy and... I don't know. I, just, I, would, I would struggle to take that man seriously. Enough said. Now, there was another one quite close to our first questioner, and then I believe there was one down here. Does, oh, Amy's got the mic. That's excellent. So you can go next. Um, uh, thank you for a most interesting discussion so far. Um, I so far? Oh, I could ruin it. <laughs> yeah. I've got Watch ten out. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't finished my question. <laughs> um, I come uh, as a perspective as a midwife, and I'm interested to, to talk about the feminist um, sort of attitudes towards pregnancy in particular. And I think that there's not one of us would want to have um, any of the anti-discrimination laws changed in any way in terms of employment of pregnant women or continued mm. employment of pregnant women. 
However, I do feel that pregnant women are a vulnerable. It's a vulnerable time in your life. And it would be really nice if there was some sort of compensation socially or some sort of acknowledgement of the, of the incredible time this is in a woman's life. <laughs> yeah. Midwives, generally. Yeah. Just for the audio, I am bowing down. Um, what's her name? Patricia. Firstly, I think that the work that you do is amazing. Um, I love midwives. I think it's an incredible job. The, of course, because it's a pre predominantly female industry, of course, it's it's not respected greatly. Or well, it's probably respected, but it's it's not considered that hard. Um, and I I went through a midwifery program at a hospital, so I only dealt with midwives. And I just think that you're just magical human beings. So thank you for the work that you do. Um, pregnancy made me, if it was possible an even stronger feminist than I already was because I had this idea, sort of like, uh, I had an intellectual idea of the impact that pregnancy had on a woman's life, but I had no idea of what it actually, the toll it actually took. And I had terrible prenatal anxiety that was, uh, you know, I write about it in the book, um, that was hugely challenging and devastating in lots of ways. And I came up against a lot of frustration and fury about how primarily women, and I say that because, of course, not everyone who has a baby identifies as a woman, but in the large part, it is women who perform that, that service. And it's also, generally speaking, it's, of course, it's an oppressed role because it's largely expected to be done by women. Um, the, the enormity of that job in providing the next generation of people and you know I'm not saying that like humanity deserves to survive so I don't think that it's, <laughs> I don't think that it's an incredible job because you know we all we we all need to be working hard to create the next generations but society relies on a new generation traditional conservative society relies on the creation of new taxpayers and women do this job they, they grow the baby, they birth the baby, they perform the, the vast majority in most cases of that baby's primary care and of the primary care of the child. Like I said, even if you're in a very supportive relationship, it's still never going to be 50-50 because this, it, just, it just can't be, especially in the early days. And, and we're all, we make it so easy for it not to be. Um, and yet there's no acknowledgement, you know, mothers are sneered at, uh, Mothers working are sneered at, and mothers staying at home are sneered at, and motherhood is perceived to be this incredibly easy job. Or what do you do all day? Um, oh, I'd love to have a six-month holiday from work. Um, I'm at work today on holiday, <laughs> um, and I just feel like, once again, it's it's an example of how very different things would be if women were not even in charge of things, but if women were allowed to participate at a 50% level of leadership, if women's experiences and women's leadership was respected and sought out and women's, women's histories were, were acknowledged, then we'd have a very different attitude to that because I do think that we need to have a much different approach to parenthood in Australia and in the West in particular in that you know, it's not normal or right for people to be sent home with a baby and that baby just 
to be with one person, the mother. You know, it's not that is not a healthy situation because it's so challenging and so difficult and really brutal in lots of ways. And that's that's not how mm. and that's not a, how animals work. Mm. You know, we need to have people around us yeah. who support. You know, this idea that somehow we all we all live as part of a community, but. And it should take a village to raise a child, but oh well, you had the child, so you should you, you should deal, deal with, with it. it. You know, why should I have to pay for you to have a child? Why should I? Why should my tax dollars have to pay for you to have a child? Because your mother had you and raised you, mm. and other people back then would have been assisting in some mm. way. You know, it's just I, I I feel like that could be a whole other mm. hour of conversation. So I don't want to get too stuck into it, but feminism and motherhood are inextricable, inextricable for me. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, like you said, it's, yeah, it really opens your eyes, doesn't it, once you do have kids to a whole lot of other stuff. But just the nub of that question about, um, you know, asking for equality and I still want to have my job and I'm pregnant and da-da-da, but then acknowledging that, well, maybe I am a bit vulnerable and maybe I am a bit, you know, whatever while I'm pregnant. How do we hold those two things together, do you think? Um... I think that there needs to be a lot more honesty about what pregnancy is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you talk about reproductive health care rights mm -hmm. and the abortion debate, it shouldn't even be a debate, you know. It's, it's a woman's body. She should mm -hmm. be able to do whatever she wants with it. And I really think that for a lot of people, you know, we know that the legislature is dominated by men and that people who are opposed to abortion in the, in the majority are men um, and cisgender men who are never going to have babies... I think that they really conceive of pregnancy as being, this is my body, and on top of this body is a bump, and the baby just kind of grows in this sort of pouch on the front of me. Slip it off. Oh, and yeah. they complain about morning sickness, and they get those funny cravings. But they don't actually recognise how that whole process of growing the baby isn't just physical, and it's not just emotional. It's like, it's like their DNA and your DNA are melded, and... You can't explain. I, I I really resist those ideas that you need to have a baby to understand what love is. It's a different kind of love. Mm. But having had that experience, it's profound. I found it to be profound. And I think that there's so much pressure on us, as you said, Patricia, to be strong and I can still do everything. I can do it all. And I'm having to be in the situation now where I'm, I'm starting to realise that I can't do it all, um, I can't, which isn't to say that I can't have it all, but I can't do it all and nor should I have to do it no. all. Me being able to be in control of the child rearing shouldn't be the price that I pay for being able to work, yeah. you know, like I shouldn't have to prove that I've got everything in, under control Absolutely. in order for me to be allowed to go back to the workplace. But workplaces also need to recognise that, um, you know, it's this, it's this whole idea as well. If we fight for equality within the structures that already exist, then we will never actually be liberated. We might achieve equality within those structures for some people, mm. but we won't achieve a li liberation. Whereas if we actually work as a community, and it will be very hard, of course it's going to be hard, it's going to take decades to do, and it will be a slow process, but if we actually try to dismantle things and recreate them with input, not just from... Because those structures have been created by white men in the majority. So they serve white men. They serve, they serve patriarchy and they serve white supremacy. And p 
people can only squabble for equality within them. But if we actually try and recreate a community and a culture and a society that is contributed by, to by a diverse group of people where everyone has a say and everyone's needs are recognised, then we would have situations in which women, women's work, not just in the domestic capacity, was valued and was sought. Mm. But they would create... But they would allow for the domestic work to meld with that and not just for women to do but for men to do as well you know that if women were able to work out of the home and men were encouraged to work in the home and we had more of a communal attitude to everything we could have a vastly different society mm. and one that was actually so much more enjoyable for everyone to live Happier. in and maybe mm. we would actually yield even better results I think we probably would I'm with you have <laughs> okay. I'm getting the the wind up. I'm so sorry. Um, Clementine will be signing books out in the foyer, so you'll have a chance to ask some questions, have a chat, chat with each other. You've been an amazing audience, and thank you so much. Unfortunately, we have run out of time tonight, um, but thank you, Clementine and Nikki, for sharing with us your insights and your discussions this evening. As Nikki said, Clementine has kindly agreed to sign copies of Fight Like a Girl upstairs in the foyer tonight. The book's are available at our bookshop with a 10% discount, a special for you tonight. Events such as these ones rely on the support of Australia's publishers. So I thank Deb from Allen and Unwin for making it possible for Clementine to visit the library and for supporting our events program throughout the year. We have an exciting program of events coming up over the remainder of the summer period. Next Monday evening, you might like to join us with Kate Gren Grenville as she discusses her latest book, The Case Against Fragrance, with Gia Metherall. And on Tuesday, Julian Schultz, editor of Griffith Review, discusses the economic, social, environmental and cultural challenges facing South Australia with Angela Woolacott, Chris Wallace and Peter Stanley. Perhaps you'd both like to come back for that one. <laughs> so thank you for joining us tonight and please join me again in thanking Clementine and Nikki. Thank you both.